You guys may have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I want you to imagine that uh, you've just met with a doctor, and the doctor has given you 24 hours to live. What, what would you say to your family that you gather around you if you knew that you had 24 hours to live? If you were given the opportunity to pray for your family, what would you pray for your spouse, for your kids, for those that you love the most if you knew that you just had 24 hours left? If you could pick one thing that you wanted to leave imprinted upon their mind, because most of us can remember the last thing that somebody said to us. We can remember what it was like to be there when our grandfather passed away in those last few moments of what was said. What, what would you want to say that would, would leave an imprint upon the mind of your spouse or of your kids if, if you knew you just had one more opportunity to be with them? Here's what John 17 is. It leaves no doubts what was on Jesus' mind as he spent the last night with his disciples. He's, he's, he's just gathered together with them. They've had their, their last supper together. He's washed their feet. They've, they, they've, he's introduced to them the, the Lord's Supper and what that's all about. And, and now he gathers them around and he prays this final prayer that will be heard by them. He's going to pray again in the garden. He'll pray again on the cross, but, but this is his prayer with his family, with his disciples, with those that he loves the most. We've looked at the first two parts of this prayer in the two previous weeks. Today we'll look at the third part of this prayer. And uh, the first part of the prayer, we, we talked about how Jesus was focused upon bringing glory to God. He, he said in, in, um, in, in that passage that, that Jesus, I want you to glorify your son, that your son can glorify you. And Jesus was focused upon bringing glory to God. It's interesting to me that in his final moments, Jesus wasn't interested in escaping the cross. He wasn't even worried most about escaping the pain of the crucifixion. In the garden, he says, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, let's do it. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. But, but here's Jesus with his final moments with the disciples. And he's praying with them, and he is focused more on bringing glory to God than he is anything else. That's the first part of his prayer. The second part of his prayer, he prays for the protection uh, and the provisions of the apostles, those that were right there with him in that room. But he prayed for their protection and their provisions so that they also could bring glory to God. And as we'll see in this third part today, as Jesus prays for those who will come as a testimony of the, the words of, of the apostles, he prays for the unity of the church. And guess why he prays for the unity of the church? So that we might bring glory to God. Our unity brings glory to God, which means our disunity does not bring glory to God. It blocks the glory of God. It obstructs the glory of God. So there's a common thread throughout this prayer, and that is that all that's done, that Jesus does, that the apostles did, and that we as the, the church of Jesus Christ do, is to bring glory and honor to God. He, he prayed that it would happen through Jesus. He prays that it would happen through the apostles. And now he prays that it will happen through all of us who are to come as a result of that ministry. Jesus 
you'll see in verse 22 as we go through this passage today, he says that the glory that God gave to him, he has now given to us that we might bring glory to him. So there's one purpose in all of our lives, and that should be to bring glory to God. We ought to live in such a way, guys, that our lives bring glory to God. I ought to love my children in a way that brings glory to God. I ought to love my spouse in a way that brings glory to God. I ought to love you in a way that brings glory to God. And I ought to love the lost world in a way that brings glory to God. So let's look at the last part of this passage. It starts in verse 20, John chapter 17, verse 20. I want to read through it, and then we'll come back and kind of go through and and talk about some different things. You're going to hear a lot of phrases repeated, some that that come from previous weeks, but but there's a lot of repetition in this prayer, and, and that repetition is not by mistake. Jesus is trying to emphasize some things to us. So listen as we read through this. He says in, in verse 20, as he shifts gears now from praying for himself and his apostles, he says, now I don't just ask for these only, not just for the 11 that are there with Jesus, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. So now he's praying for everybody that's to come after the apostles. I pray that they might all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, so that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made you known, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So here's Jesus praying for the church, not an organization, but the church, the people in the church. When we speak about the church, guys, we're speaking about ourselves. When, when we make a comment about the church, we are really reflecting ourselves because we are the church. And so here's Jesus praying for the church, not this organization, but about his spiritual family made up of all believers of all times. It's important that we be reminded That the church is not just those of us gathered here. But the church is all believers of all times. Gathered all around this world. And those who have come before us and those who will follow after us. This is the church that Jesus is praying for. He says, I'm praying for those, in verse 20, those who will believe through the apostles' word. Those who are yet to come. Here's, Here's 11 gathered with Jesus that he's praying with. But he said, I'm not just praying for these alone. I'm praying for everyone who will come after this as a result of their word. Now, it's interesting to me 
that when Jesus prays, he says, those who will come because of their word, those who will believe through their word. Jesus intended that the apostles not keep what they had to themselves, but that they shared, and that the gospel would then transform life after life after life. Jesus' model is disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And that's how the gospel spreads. It's not by us gathering in a holy huddle. It's not by us just gathering together and and, and being fearful and living here and, and afraid to go out in the world and afraid to get dirty and afraid to be tempted. It's not that at all. It's by us taking what God gives us and sharing it with the world that the world then comes to know who Jesus is. So Jesus says, Here's, there's a plan, that these guys are going to take what I've given them. He says, as you sent me, Father, I'm sending them. And they're going to share the gospel. And as they share the gospel, others are going to come. And those are who I'm praying for right now, Jesus says. So he prays for those who make up this spiritual family. Notice what Jesus asks for. Verse 21, I'm asking that they may all be one. He's praying for the unity of believers. Now, some people will listen to this and say, well, then that what Jesus is saying is that all churches around the world ought to just be one. That would be great if that could occur. But he's going to give us some things, and, and, and there's some phrases here that, that sometimes we just read right through and we don't pay attention to. But look what he says. He said, I want them to be one. But look at the next part. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That's the qualifier. I want them to be one just in, in the same way that, that, that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. Perfectly unified in that way. So we've got to ask the question, and this is why I've got to come back after Seattle. We've got to ask the question, how is the Son and the Father and the Father and the Son? What is it that unifies the Father and the Son? And that's going to take more than one sermon for us to cover. But Jesus is saying, I want them to be one as we are one. But we've got to know how they're one in order to know how to, how to respond to what Jesus is asking for, how to fulfill what Jesus is asking for. Now, I alluded to this in my prayer, but I want you to grab this. The truths that we're going to talk about over these next several weeks, to, we'll start today and we'll, we'll go into the next couple of weeks. The truths that we'll talk about, guys, are not just to unify the church, although it will. But it unifies a husband and a wife. If you want to know how to build a marriage that is unified, that is together, that that cannot be broken apart, the things I'll give to you today in the next few weeks will be will be bedrock things that you need to build your marriage upon. Okay? And, and if you don't have this in a marriage, then then you're not going to experience the unity that Jesus wants for you to have. Part of the reason that Jesus says that we're not to be unequally yoked is that, is that we cannot accomplish what he's going to talk about here today in a marriage or in a business or, or in friendships if we are not together, if we are not united. We can't accomplish that in the church if we're not united. And so what he asks for here is that we would be one just as the Father is one. This phrase, just as you, uh, just as you are in me and I am in you, it's repeated four or five different times in John chapter 17. It's central. When you see a phrase in the scriptures repeated again and again and again you got to stop and say whoa 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 he didn't just say that once although if jesus says it once it's enough 
But if Jesus says it several times, then what's he really getting at? He's talked about us being one, just as he and the Father are one. In in verse 11, Jesus says that. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they might be one, even as we are one. There it is in verse 11. It's again here in verse 21 that we just read. It's also in verse 22. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they might be one even as we are one. It's also in verse 23. He says, I am in them and you are in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you love, uh, even as you love them, even as you love me. So here he's talking about I and them and you and me. We are one. It's this, this repeated thing again and again, and it's critical to us understanding what Jesus is asking for. Some people have taken this passage and said Jesus is praying for the unity of the church. Therefore, every denomination just needs to get together, set aside their differences, and just sing kumbaya. That is not what Jesus is saying. That would be great if every church was on the same page, if every church clung to the same truth, if every church practiced the five things that we'll talk about here today. That could occur, but it's... it's, it would take a miracle of God for that to happen. So he says, Father, may they be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So they also may be in us. You've heard the, the, the example of a triangle, a marriage being a triangle. And, and you've got a husband here and a wife here and you've got God here. And, and the closer the husband moves to God, the closer the wife moves to God, the closer they're getting to each other. Well, here's, here's what God's saying, Father, that, that, that I'm in you and, and, and you and me, and as they are in us, we're, they're gonna, you're going to pull them together in us. But look what he says. He says, I want this unity. I pray for this unity. Why? When you study the Bible, guys, listen, you've got to look at these connecting phrases. They answer the questions how and why and, and, and things like that. Why does he want us to be one? Why is this on Jesus' mind in his final hours? He tells us right there in verse 21. I want them to be one, like we're one, and that can be in us, so that, here's the why, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This, this phrase that the world may believe that you've sent me is used six different times in John 17. It's in verse 3, it's in verse 8, it's in verse 18, verse 21, 23, and 25. Six different times in John 17. Six different times Jesus says that it's important that the world believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Why is it so critical that the world believe that Jesus was sent by the Father? Because Jesus says that it's through the belief that Jesus was God's son that eternal life comes. Back in, in, the, in the first part of this prayer, he, he prays that um, in verse 3, he says in John seventeen three, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. 
Why is it important? Jesus says it's important that the church, that believers be unified, because when the believers are unified, the world then can believe that Jesus was sent by God. Well, why is it important that the world believe that Jesus was sent by God? Because eternal life is linked to that. There is no eternal life apart from belief that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah who died in our place and offers us salvation. So all of these things are woven together in Jesus' prayer. He's connecting the dots, if you will. And it's important that we do that as we study this passage. So here he prays, Lord, let them be one. Why? So that the world can believe you sent me. Why is that important? Because eternal life is this, Jesus says, that they believe in you, that they know you, and that they believe that you sent me. There's a lot of people, the Jews of Jesus' day, believed there was a God. And they actually believed in the right God. The failure of the Jews was they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus says it takes both of those things. We talk to people sometimes and say, do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. Got a sticker on my car that says, in God we trust. The real question is, do you believe Jesus was the Messiah? Do you believe Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for your sins and for my sins? It takes both of those So Jesus is saying, I want them to be unified so that the world can believe, but that the world can believe that that I'm the one that came to die for them. And then he says something in verse 22. And I'll be honest with you, when I first started studying this passage, I just kind of ran through 22. And God kept bringing me back again and again and again to verse 22. I think it may be the hinge pin, uh, the hinge pin of of, of this, this whole passage. Look what he says. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. There's a critical element to the unity of the church. And Jesus says here again, how do we do it? How do we become one as he is one? Jesus said it was necessary that he give us the glory that he gave the Father, that the Father had given him. Now, we talked about what glory was last week or the week before. I can't remember. Maybe the week before. And we said that glory is giving worth, expressing worth of a person. That when we give glory to God, we are expressing to God his supreme worth. If he is all glorious, then he is all worthy. And, 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 and Jesus prays that the Father would give him glory, that he could then give God glory back. And so Jesus was saying, Father, let the world see my worth. Let them see that I am the Messiah, that I did come to die for them. But then here's what Jesus says. He says, the worth, Father, that you bestowed upon me, that you have demonstrated toward me, that worth that you gave me, I have given to them. Now, I need you to follow me here because I'm going to do my best to try to put this together. I think this is what Jesus is saying. We will never be unified the way Jesus prays for us to be unified until we find our worth in Jesus and not in our achievements. If I'm trying to prove my worth by being the best pastor there's ever been, then I'm going to be competing with every other pastor in town. If I'm trying to prove that I'm some kind of, some kind of super Christian, then I've got to be better than you and everybody else, or else I'm just an average Christian. If I don't find my worth in Christ and in Christ alone, 
then the things that are going to motivate me and, 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 and drive me are going to be things that divide us and not unite us. To win the Super Bowl, you've got to beat every other team. To be the best in NASCAR, you've got to beat everybody else. To do whatever it is, to, to, to be whatever it is, to get this, this identity, this, to find my worth, means that I've got to do it not just good, but I've got to do it better than everybody else. That's why you got some friends that when you talk to them and you tell them your story, something cool happens in your life, and you go, man, let me tell you something exciting that just happened in my life. They go, oh, yeah, but let me tell you what happened to me. It's always got to be better. And you know what that does? That divides us. It doesn't unite us. But here's what happens when I find my worth in Christ. When I find my worth in Jesus, I don't have to impress you anymore. I don't have to one-up you anymore. I don't have to be better than you. I can just rest in Christ. God didn't love Jesus after he died on the cross. We see in this passage, he says, Father, you love me since before the foundation of the world. And Jesus rested in that. He found his identity in the Father. And then he says, Father, I, just like you, you gave that blessing to me, I'm giving that blessing to them. I'm letting them find their identity in me because it's the only way the church will come together. It's the only way. As long as we are trying to make a name for ourselves, as long as we are trying to, to prove our worth to others or to God or to ourselves, we will never come together. And we will never be unified the way that Jesus prays that we can be unified. So he says, the glory you gave me This worth that you bestowed upon me, Father, I'm bestowing that same worth upon them so that it's possible for them to be one. Does that make sense? So when I'm striving in my strength to prove myself, it's going to Put division between me and everybody else. Does that that make sense? If I've got to make myself look good, then then one way to do that is to make everybody else look bad. You know, if you want to feel thin, what do you do? You just hang around people that are bigger than you, right? You, You want to come across nice? You just act nicer than those others around you. Jesus says, look, I I want to put an end to that. And I want you to find your identity in me. Because it's the only way that you'll stop competing with other people and just be the one I created you to be. And then and only then can the body of Christ come together. So he says, let let them be one. It's It's a unity, he says, that will transform not only their lives, but it will transform the lives of those who've yet to believe. And the, the unity that Jesus asked for, grab this, it is unattainable on our own. If this could just happen with your strength and my strength, Jesus wouldn't have spent his final minutes praying for it. But he knew the only way this would be possible is if the Father did a supernatural work in us. So here he's saying, I, I want you to see that it's important that, that, that you find your identity in me. 
And then he says this, I in them, there's our identity. Father, you in me, that they might become perfectly one, perfectly united. And again, why is that so critical? He tells us, there's the phrase, that connecting phrase, so that. When you see the the phrase, so that, he's telling you why something's important. Why, why, Why do they need to be perfectly one? So that, here we go, the world may know that you sent me, but also that the world may know that you love them even as you love me. So Jesus expands upon what he just said in verse 21. He says, I I want them to be perfectly unified in a way that the world will still know that you sent me, but they'll also understand how much you love them even as you love me. One of the verses that our little kids are learning at such a young age is John 3.16. For God so loved that he sent or that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is combining those two things right here. He's saying, I need them to know that you sent me, that that, that you gave your son for them. That's how much you loved them. For God so loved that he gave. I'm praying that that, that they could be one. So we, we, we go through this and we look at what he's saying here. I want them to be one so the world may know. Notice this, that it's not just for our benefit. He doesn't say, I want them to be one so they can get along. I want them to be one so they can enjoy being together. I want them to be one so the church can get big. That's not what Jesus is saying. I want them to be one so the church will, so the world can't deny the fact that I'm in them and that you are in me and that you're doing this supernatural work. In verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, the ones whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. He's talking about eternity and God's presence. I want them to see my glory that you've given me. So Jesus is saying, Lord, look, you've, you've given me glory. He's, he's talked about the, the Father restoring in the, in the previous part of this, this prayer, that the Father would restore to him the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus is anticipating being in the presence of God. He's about to die, be back with the Father. And he's saying, Lord, I want them to come be with me. Remember John chapter 14? In my Father's house are many mansions. If not so, I told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am there, you may be also. Here's Jesus bringing that back up. He's saying, I want them to be with me, but I want them to be able to see my glory, to see the worth, Father, that you've bestowed upon me, this worth that you gave me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God bestowed this love and this worth upon Jesus, not because of what Jesus did, but before Jesus ever created us or saved us. Righteous Father, he says, even though the world does not know you, Jesus is praying that's going to change, right? I'm praying the world will come to know you because of this unity that you perform in these people. But right now the world doesn't know you, but I know you and and these know you. He's going back now to the 11 that are with him. I know you and, and these know you. They know that you sent me. There's that phrase again. Critical. I made known to them your name, your character, your attributes, your nature. And I will continue to make it known. Why is that critical? So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's five things that Jesus alludes to in this prayer. 
that give us a clue of what it looks like for the Son to be in the Father and the Father to be in the Son. These are the five things that I want to unpack in the weeks to come, okay? But I want to give them to you today, and I want you to begin to think them through. I want you to, if you would, pull out a pen and paper, write these five things down, because these are five things that, that unify the Father and the Son. They unify a church member to another church member, and they will unify a husband to a wife. Five things that will unify a marriage, unify a relationship, unify uh, the church, because they are what unify the Father and the Son. So this unity that Jesus asked for is a supernatural spiritual unity. It's modeled after the unity of the Godhead. Father, make them one just as we are one. So that begs the question, how are the Father and the Son united? How are they brought together? In what ways? What unites them? Because whatever unites them must also unite my marriage, my church, my relationships. Okay? Here's five things. And we'll unpack these more in the weeks to come, but let me just introduce them to you today, okay? Five things that Jesus suggests in this passage that unites the church. Number one, they are united in purpose. United in purpose. The Father and the Son have the same purpose, the same goal, the same thing that they are striving for. Wouldn't it be odd if the Father had one thing he was striving for and the Son had another thing he was striving for? They would be disunited. They would, they would be in disunity. But the Father and the Son are striving for the same thing. And Jesus makes that known, that thing. That thing is the glorification of God. To glorify God. Everything Jesus did on this earth was to bring glory to God. Now follow me. That's also our purpose. It's also our purpose in life. Jesus says, Father, glorify the Son. Not that I can be a big name, not that I can, but why? So that I can then glorify you. How many times in Scripture do we hear the Father speaking out and saying, this is my Son in whom I, I love and, and, and I take glory in Him. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, that's what the Godhead does. It, it, it's its purpose is to bring glory to itself. Every single thing Jesus did was to bring glory to God. And when our purpose is to live for God's glory, that eliminates all the stuff that creates disunity. It eliminates a prideful heart. Uh, it, 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 it eliminates this, this competition between believers. It eliminates this, this looking down on others. When I'm living for God's glory, then my attitude and my heart and my mind and my words and all those things that I do are, are focused on bringing glory to God, then all of a sudden I stop sabotaging the thing that God's prayed for here. The glory of the Godhead is what Jesus was living for. It's what we are called to live for. Listen, when a husband seeks to bring glory to God and a wife seeks to bring glory to God, they are united in purpose. If my purpose in marriage is that I can be married to my wife so that she can make me happy, so that she can meet all my needs, so that I can look good in the community or I can have kids and raise kids. If that's my purpose for being married, that may work for a little while, but that's too small of a purpose. Our purpose ought to be to bring glory to God. And the way a husband brings glory to God is by loving his wife the way that Jesus loves church. That brings glory to God. 
the way that a wife loves her, the way that a wife responds in love to her husband, the way that the church responds to Jesus is, is the way that she brings glory to God. And so as, as the husband and the wife seek to bring glory to God, they are united in purpose. And so Jesus and the Godhead are united in purpose. When we as believers live to bring glory to God, then I'm not going to gossip because that doesn't bring glory to God. I'm not going to compete with others. I'm not going to compare myself. I'm, I'm going to find my identity, my worth in Christ because that's what brings glory to God. Does that make sense? We have a, have a common purpose. And for Jesus, that, that common purpose with the Father was that, that the Godhead be glorified. But that's not the only thing that's needed. There's a second thing that we need. So we, we've got this, this unity of purpose, but we also need to have a unity of mission. Now follow me on this, a unity of mission. Mission is different than purpose. They sound, in, in your mind, you might think, oh, those are the same thing. Your purpose is your ultimate goal. My ultimate goal in life is to bring glory to God. My mission is how I accomplish that. So if my goal is to bring glory to God, how do I bring glory to God? Well, as a husband, I love my wife the way Jesus loves the church. But, but as a believer, we've been given a mission, right? Jesus says, Father, just as you sent me, I have sent them. That's our mission. Jesus' mission was to redeem the lost. That's why he came. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. That was his mission. We get to the great commission, which has become the great omission in many places. But this is the great commission. Jesus says, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Okay? Th- that's part of our commission, our great commission. But listen to this, guys. It is a co-mission. Meaning we don't do that alone. We do it together with the Lord. We cannot go and make disciples without the Lord. We cannot do this thing without God. Jesus says, Father, as as you have sent me, I have sent them. That's verse 18. No other mission is worthy of the Lord. No other mission unites the church and believers like the Great Commission. So there's a unity of purpose, my overall goal in life. There is my mission, how I accomplish that goal, by making disciples of other people. In a marriage, we share a mission. And that is to love our spouse and to love our kids the way that Jesus has called us to do that. In the church, our mission is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's our mission. There's a third thing that unites the Godhead. And that is that they are united in truth. United in truth. Jesus says in verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. It's the word of God that that unites us, the word of God that sanctifies us and calls us out of the world. It's the truth of God that unites. Our world's got this all screwed up. Our world thinks if we just set truth aside, that somehow we can be united. It's called political correctness. 
It's, it's, it's called postmodernism, where, where, where you have your truth and I have my truth, and those two truths can just coexist. That's garbage. It's not gospel. Here's what Jesus is saying. We are united in truth. There's not some kind of heavenly truth and then worldly truth. Maybe you've heard people say what I've heard people say. was saying, well, that may be true in a perfect world, but we live in reality. There is no such truth for the perfect world and truth for reality. Truth is truth. And, 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 and for people of God to be united, we have to be united around the truth. That's why denominations will, will probably never, ever come together. Is that people, they, they, well, this is truth and this truth, and we believe this truth and you believe that truth. We've got to get the truth, the truth of God's word. There's just one truth, and that is the word of God. Here's, here's where our world has cut its own throat, okay? Follow me on this. In, in, in the world that we have today with postmodernism and, and this idea that, 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 that there's no absolute truth and that your truth is as good as my truth, even if those two truths are at odds. I heard somebody the other day saying this, you know, well, well, that's your truth and that's really good. And you need to cling to your truth. Here, here's the thing. What they're saying is your opinion is your truth. And my opinion is my truth, even if they're at odds. That can't be. There is one truth, and the church must be built upon that truth if it's going to be united. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is the truth. So God's word not only sanctifies us, but it also unifies us. Because if all I want it to, is to say, well, your opinion is your truth, and my opinion is my truth, then truth becomes nothing more than an opinion. There's only one absolute truth, and that's God's Word. And, and two people who cling to two different truths can never experience the true unity. At best, what they can do is to tolerate one another, but never experience the unity that Jesus calls us to. The common truth of God's word unifies the Father and the Son. And our commitment to that same truth unifies us to the Father and the Son. And without a commitment to that same truth, division is the result. Do you know why we have so many denominations? Because denominations depart from the truth. And then there's a group that goes back to the truth, and now we have two. And then somebody departs from the truth, and somebody stays with the truth, and now we have four. And, and, and denominations spring out. That's what, the, that's what the Reformation was all about, was a call back to the truth. So we, we need to be united in purpose and in mission and in truth. But there's a fourth thing that unites the Godhead, and it must unite us. And that is unity through holiness. Unity through holiness. What united Jesus to the Father was a commitment to holiness. God is holy. We know that. And the fact that Jesus came and lived a sinless, perfect life, that Jesus was holy, united him with the Father. And holiness is also what's going to unite us to each other and unite us to the, to the Father. Jesus was holy. Now, the problem for us is that we are not we are sinful, and we are fallen, and we are fragile. 
We have the gospel, but we have it in containers and vessels that are made of clay and that break easy. We could never achieve holiness on our own. And therefore, we could never experience what Jesus is praying for here apart from him, which is why we need Jesus. It's why this unity that Jesus is praying for is supernatural because it's not accomplished apart from him. It's why he says the world cannot experience this. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me because this kind of unity is only possible for those who have, who have been made holy in the eyes of God through the death of Jesus. John 17, 19, Jesus says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. I, I dedicate myself. I give myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. There's a holiness that is available to us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's only through his sacrifice that we could be holy and be made one with God. But that holiness, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, that holiness requires a hatred of sin in my heart and in my life and in my attitudes and my actions towards others. Until I get to the place that I hate sin in my life, I will not experience the unity that Jesus calls me to experience with other believers. There's a fifth thing that unifies us. And that is we are unified in love. In love. Jesus talks about the the love the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. The love that Jesus demonstrates for us as he dies upon the cross. Jesus said, I demonstrated the Father's love, John 17, 4, by accomplishing all that the Father gave me to do. That's how Jesus showed his love for the Father. And then in 17, 24, it it tells us that that the Father loved him even before the foundation of the world. Back in John chapter 5, verse 20, it talks about the fact that the Father loved the Son and showed the Son all that he was doing. In the Godhead, there is this mutual love for each other that unites the Godhead. The Father not holding back from the Son and the Son not holding back from the Father, but the two of them loving each other in a way that, that is an example for all of us to love one another. In verse 26 of this passage, the end of the prayer, Jesus said, I made known to them your name. He revealed the Father to us. And I will continue, Father, to reveal you to them so that the love with which you've loved me might be in them. There's a love that unifies the body. Jesus mentions all five of these things in this passage. We've talked about where those things are located. But we need to ask this question as we kind of wrap up today. Why is it so critical that we be united. Why, why is that the thing that's on the forefront of Jesus' mind when the cross is just hours away? Well, he says in verse 21, so that the world might believe that you sent me. They'll understand that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the sacrifice, that I'm the one that bestows their worth upon them. And that the world might know not only that you sent me, but that you 
sent me because you love them just like you love me. Again, I said to you at the beginning that the reason that's so critical is that eternal life is tied up within knowing God and knowing his son that he sent. So our unity is not just about us. This unity that Jesus prays for has eternal implications on those who have yet to believe. And I would say this to you this morning. The unity that Jesus prays for, guys, is essential. It is critical to us being able to accomplish our mission. If this unity is lacking, our mission will never be accomplished. And God will never get the glory that he deserves. So let me wrap it up with this, with this statement. It's obvious to me that we're going to need God's grace to accomplish this, right? We can't do it on our own. It's, it's supernatural. We're going to need God's grace to believe and speak the truth, because truth is essential. But to speak that truth in love, because love is critical, And when we do that, we call God's people to holiness and we call the lost world to salvation. And we do all of that for the glory of God. All five things in one statement. Let me say it again. We believe and we speak the truth because that's critical. We speak the truth in love because if we don't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't work. So we speak the truth. We speak it in love. It calls God's people to holiness. It calls the lost world to salvation. And all of those things bring glory to the Father. When I get back from Seattle, we're going to unpack these five things. And we'll take a couple weeks and we'll walk through why these five things are so critically important. I don't think it's just enough for us just to throw them out there this morning and say, hey, we need these five things. I think we really need to look at how we go about accomplishing God's purpose, God's mission. You know, all all these things have to be done. The, the, The purpose, the mission, the truth, the holiness, the love. We need to look at those five things and go, how do we do that? Because here's 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 the interesting thing. What Jesus is praying for when he prays for unity, goes beyond people just gathering together. We can gather together every Sunday and not be unified. But what Jesus is asking for transcends space and time. He is praying that we be united with those first century believers. He's praying that we be reunited with, 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 with believers across the world. He's praying that we be united with those who haven't even been born yet, but will be born and will believe in Jesus. It's more than just those that gather in a building. It's about all believers being united with all believers of all times. And that can only be done through the Holy Spirit. So as we close today, I want to ask you to join me and let's pray that, that God would, would remind us of our purpose, would remind us of our mission, would, would anchor us to the truth, would, would call us to, to holiness, 
where we hate the sin in our own lives so much that we just, we don't even want to do that. And that we begin to look at others with the same love that the Father looks at us. So let's pray.